who is Jesus? This was the question that Jesus himself asked his disciples in Matthew 16 when he asked, who do you say that I am? It was an important question then. It's especially important now in our day. Although Jesus remains incredibly popular in our country, not every Jesus is the real Jesus. There's the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges, who's for family values and owning firearms. There's the Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart, who's for against reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and to not be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who aren't as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and who determines the outcome of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot wearing a sash while looking very German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus, who teaches us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, who would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and wants you to find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example, Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator who came to earth, the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the servant, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, 
The Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died. The Christ promised to David when he was king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as the suffering servant. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and our God. He is the Father's Son, the Savior of the world, the substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderful than we ever dreamed. This is the Christ of Colossians. The book of Colossians declares that the greatness of God is displayed through the Son, and the glory of the gospel is made evident only in his Son. Uh, Today, we are beginning a six-week study through the book of Colossians. Colossae was a small town 80 miles inland from Ephesus in modern-day western Turkey. The Apostle Paul preached in Ephesus, and there were two visitors who believed, Epaphras, who we will see in Colossians 1, and Philemon. The Colossian church met in Philemon's house. As Paul puts pen to paper and writes this letter, he addresses a specific false teaching that had infiltrated the church that scholars call the Colossian heresy. Determining what exactly this heresy was is difficult, but it certainly had elements of Gnosticism. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, and it means knowledge. Now, Gnosticism did not become a a full-blown heresy until the second century. Colossians, uh, written in the first century, likely shows us an initial form of this. And it has certain Jewish elements mixed in with it. Now, when you hear the word Gnostic, I want you to think know-it-all. Gnostics considered considered themselves to be spiritually elite. They saw themselves as superior to others because they had access to special religious knowledge through secret rituals and formulas. They also denied the reality of Christ's incarnation and the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. And that's why understanding the historical context of the New Testament is so important. The writers of the New Testament all have one thing in common that is crucial for our reading and interpreting them. They're what we might call occasional documents. That is, they arise out of and they are intended for a specific occasion. So although they're inspired by the Holy Spirit and thus they're relevant and applicable for all people in all time, They were first written out of the context of the author to the context of the original recipients. And so most of our problems in interpreting the New Testament letters are due to this fact of of them being occasional. We have the answers, but we don't always have or know the questions or the problems or even if there was a problem. It's a lot like listening to one end of a phone conversation and trying to figure out who's on the other end of the phone and what that unseen person is saying. The theme that Paul uses in this letter to address this false teaching is the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the head of all creation and of the church. Therefore, Christians are complete in Christ. Bible scholar Kent Hughes says there is no book in the New Testament which presents such a comprehensive picture of the fullness of Christ. With that introduction, I want us to read the first eight verses of chapter one. And I'd like us to stand and read this together. 
Colossians 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. In these first eight verses of Colossians, Paul begins this letter by thanking the Colossians for their faith, for their their heavenly hope that came to them through the true gospel of Jesus. See, the Colossians, they knew who Jesus truly was, but that understanding of who Jesus was was under attack. So this leads Paul to let them know that he is praying for them in verses 9 through 14, which is where I want us to spend the bulk of our time together today. Sarah was a people pleaser. Sarah lived to make other people happy. Her whole life was dominated with questions like, how can I make my boss happy? How can I make my husband happy? How can I make my children happy? How can I make my parents happy? Does that sound familiar at all? It's a hamster wheel where you're running and running, but you never seem to be going anywhere and it's hard to get off. Whether Sarah ever succeeded in making everyone or anyone happy, the fact was she certainly wasn't happy herself. Why is that? Well, there's a number of effects if we try to live a people-pleasing life. The first effect is it makes us sin because it makes us say things and do things that we shouldn't do and say, and it makes us avoid saying things and doing things that we should say and do. It makes us sin. It also requires mind reading because we're always trying to peer into people's minds and try to figure out what pleases him and what pleases her and what pleases them. It's draining because we can never succeed. It takes huge effort, constant energy to try to figure out what people want and what others are demanding and it it leaves us exhausted. And ultimately it leaves us angry as we lash out at those that, that we can't seem to please. People-pleasing is miserable and impossible. But there is a much better way to live, and it's the way of God-pleasing, and we see it in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. Here, Paul prays that the Colossians would become God-pleasers, and then he explains what that means. We see it in verses 9 through 14. He traces four steps, beginning in verse 9. We read, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. 
So the first step, Paul says, because of your heavenly hope, verses 3 through 8, he says, I pray for you in verse 9. And that leads to step two. He says, my my prayer is that God will fill you with the knowledge of his will, which leads to step three. He says, the reason I want you to know his will is so that you can please him, verse 10. And then step four, he describes what a God-pleasing life looks like with four verbs or four action words. So we're going to be looking at each of these four activities, these four verbs of God-pleasing. But before we do that, we we might ask, why did Paul pray this prayer? Well, it could be simply that that as Christians, we are constantly faced with the temptation to please others, and so we, we always need this prayer. But I don't want you to forget that special circumstances that were happening in Colossae. Very clever and influential false teachers, we've identified them as the Gnostics, They had invaded the Colossian church, and Colossian believers were were being drawn to follow them, Uh, partly because they were such intellectually brilliant and popular people. We're going to come back to the Gnostics again, but but I want us to first discover the, the first way that we please God. Increased fruitfulness pleases God. Verse 10 so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Here's our first verb. Bearing fruit in every good work. So first of all, a life of pleasing God is described as bearing fruit. This tells us that God is a gardener. But before we think of God as a gardener, we have to think of him as a judge. In Romans chapter 3 and in other places, we're told with how to deal with God as a judge. And that means that we approach his holy court by faith in Christ so that he can declare us right in the eyes of his holy law. He justifies us. He declares us right by faith in Christ, and he accepts Christ on our behalf. And when we come to God by faith, we please him. As judge, he is pleased with us. And that never, ever changes because Christ never changes. In other words, once we have been declared just by God through faith, we please him perfectly, and we can't please him more or less than the first moment when we believed Christ and were justified. But then, the judge puts us into his garden to produce fruit. And as a gardener, we can please him more or less. God is pleased when we bear good fruit. Elsewhere, like in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul focused on spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. But here, he's referring to fruit that is tangible and visible and physical. So so why is he so concerned with, with fruit that is visible? Well, because the Gnostics were threatening the Colossian church. We've called them, identified them as as know-it-alls, because that's how they viewed themselves. These know-it-alls said it doesn't matter how you live. All that matters is what you know. The mind is everything. The body is unimportant. The body is is disposable. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body. But Paul pushes back and he says, time out. No, no, no. There's got to be fruit. There must be visible, tangible, good works. What you do with and in your body is vital. 
God, God is very interested in visible, physical fruit in your life. God is pleased with bearing good fruit. So, so what's this mean for us? Well, first, I think we have to ask, have we dealt with God as a judge? There's no point in thinking of God as a gardener until you've thought of him as a judge. You can't think about growing fruit until you've got rid of guilt. You can't think about pleasing him with, with fruit until you've pleased him with faith. And so maybe there are some of you who, who you need to pray, God in heaven, just judge. I approach you in Christ's name, and I ask for you to be well pleased with me because you are well pleased with him. But I know there, there are many of you who you've already pleased God as judge by your faith in Jesus, and so your prayer would be, God, help me to please you as a gardener. Help me to bring forth good fruit. Now, maybe you love the idea of, of producing fruit to please God, but, but you wonder what pleases him. Well, the second verb gives us the answer. Increased theology pleases God. Verse 10 says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Here's the second verb, growing in the knowledge of God. This tells us that knowledge of God is important. Theology is the knowledge of God. And, and these Gnostic know-it-alls, they thought that they knew it all. But just because the know-it-alls were making knowledge everything doesn't mean that Paul makes it nothing. Yes, he corrects the know-it-all's exclusive focus on knowledge, but he doesn't reject knowledge. He, he says it's important. Fruit-bearing and theology are not contradictory, but complementary. They fit really well together. Pleasing God is made up partly of knowing God. But, but here's the second thing he tells us. Knowledge of God is available to us all. Contrary to the, to the know-it-alls who reserved the highest knowledge for, for the elite, for, for the academics, for, for those who are in the know, Paul's prayer is that, that every Colossian believer would know God more. Also, the knowledge that the, the know-it-alls sought after was a mystical, it was a magical knowledge that was gained by rituals and formulas. As Paul makes clear in, in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, he says, the way you know God is through his word, it's through scripture. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and, and training and, and righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be equipped thoroughly for every good work. Here, Paul says, you don't have to be special. You don't have to have elite qualifications. You don't have to go through certain steps. This knowledge is available to us all in his own word that he's provided to us. You want to know how to please God? It's right here. It's in his word. You don't need to guess. You don't need someone to, to, to give, teach you with special knowledge. Remember Sarah? She operated by mind reading, didn't she? Just guessing. But here, Paul says, you please God not through mind reading, but through scripture reading. And through that, you know him more. When you hear that, do you ask yourself the question, do I know God? 
you're not short of knowledge available to you, right? You have the Bible, you've listened to plenty of sermons, you've read books, you have access to conferences, uh, several of you were raised in Christian families, it's there, but have you used it? If you don't know God, then, then maybe you need to pray, God, you, you are not unknowable. Help me to, to gain the knowledge that, that you have given to me. Help me to use the knowledge you've given to me so that I can know you and I can please you. And if you do know God, then, then you should live confidently that whenever you learn one new thing about him, it pleases him. It brings God joy. And so for a lot of you, your prayer is, Lord, I, I know you. But God, I want to know you more. God, I, I pray that, that, Lord, I have been a Christian for years. But God, I'm praying, help me not to coast. Help me not to plateau in my knowledge. But God, help me to keep growing. Help me to grow not only in my head knowledge, but, but in my heart knowledge. All right, you may be thinking, increased fruit pleases God. Increased theology pleases God. That, that's a lot. More fruit and more knowledge. Like, how am I ever going to do that? Well, this third verb gives us hope and tremendous encouragement. Increased dependence pleases God. He doesn't say, I want more fruit and I want more knowledge, now go. He says, I want more fruit, I want more knowledge, and I'm here to help you. Notice that third action here. So that you may please him in every way, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. God enjoys empowering his people. Being strengthened is a passive verb. In other words, it's not something we do, it's something that's done to us by an outside force. So we're, we're being told more fruit and more knowledge, and God says, I'm here to connect you to the power to do this. Don't try to do this in your own strength. Don't try to do this in your own might, but be strengthened. So what kind of power does God give? Look at how he defines it. It's all power according to his glorious might. It's his glorious might. That phrase is a reference to the powerful glory that filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and the temple in 1 Kings 8, the powerful glory that transfigured Christ in the Gospels. That power is our power. In other words, God doesn't come to us with a AAA battery and say, hey, hey connect to that. No, he says, I've got nuclear power here. I've got glory power here, all power. That's the power that's available to us. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So how do I get that? Active passivity. Active dependence. Active reliance on God. That's a strange combination, isn't it? It seems contradictory, but... But what he commands, he gives what he commands. He commands it, and then what he commands is what he gives to us. We are to actively rely on God's power because God empowers the powerless who seek his power. And when we do that, it pleases him. Now, parents, we understand this, right? 
yeah, sure, there are times when, when our kids come to us and ask us for something and it's exhausting, but, but most of the time when, when they come to us, you, you enjoy helping them, right? It kind of honors you. You kind of feel like, wow, you know, they still do need me. Even when they're teenagers, it's like, wow, you know, they still find, find a use for their old man. And so you're happy when, when they come to you with a problem or with a question. And so it is with God as well. He loves it when we come to him and we say, God, I need your help. This is a part of pleasing God. And what does that power accomplish? He tells us in verses 11 and 12. God strengthens us so that you may have great endurance and patience in giving joyful thanks. God's power produces joyful patience. That's not too high of an expectation, is it? It's not saying so that you can run a marathon. It's saying so that you can just stand still, that you can be patient. You're facing difficult people. You're facing difficult circumstances. Lots of different forces are coming against you, trying to knock you off your feet, trying to knock you off your balance. But if you are strengthened by God, having great endurance and patience, that is more pleasing to God than making strides in our own strength. Standing still in God's strength pleases God. Winston Churchill, the great leader of England, gave the commencement speech at his alma mater, Harrow School, shortly after World War II. He stood up and he said, young gentlemen, never give up, never give up, never give up. Never, never, never. And then he sat down. That was his speech. Some of you were thinking, I wish more sermons were that way. But Churchill wanted them to remember this and this alone. And this is what Paul is saying too, never give up. Never, ever, ever. He's speaking of great endurance and patience. That pleases God. The fact that you're still standing, you're still believing, you're still enduring, if it's by God's strength, he's delighted. So today, you might need to say to God, Lord, I've been trying way too hard to do this in my own strength. Help me to disconnect from this pathetic self-recharging battery and God, help me to connect to your almighty power. And if you are connected to his power, thank him for it. It's his power alone that makes you a Christian today. Without it, you'd fall away. So never give up because God doesn't give up. Remember Sarah? People-pleasing drained her. And people-pleasing drains us. But God-pleasing strengthens us. Let's look at the fourth verb. So God gives us his glorious power to joyfully endure to the end. So what's our response? Number four, increased thanks pleases God. So that you may please him in every way, verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father. And then he goes on to specify what exactly we're to give him thanks for. First, he tells us to thank God for qualification. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He says, thank God for qualifying you for heaven. Not long ago, I saw a headline quoting Michael Bloomberg. It said, I have earned my place in heaven. 
The subtitle was, The former New York City mayor is confident that his latest $50 million gun control initiative has secured him a happy afterlife. The article said, Bloomberg is proud of himself too, ready for his judgment day. Bloomberg boasted, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. You know, there's a lot of Michael Bloombergs in our world today. They just don't come out and say it as clearly as that. I hope there's not any Bloombergs in here. I hope there's not any Bloombergs watching online where, where you think that, that, that you've qualified yourself because of what you've done. No, 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 you're, you're not only unqualified for heaven, you're disqualified. But as this verse tells us, we can be qualified. God does the qualifying. We don't qualify ourselves. He qualifies us. And he does it by accepting Christ's qualifications on our behalf. And if he qualifies us, no one can disqualify us. Second, he tells us to thank God for rescue. Verse 13, he says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves. That word for brought there in verse 13, it's also used for the transfer or the deportation of a nation, for being moved from one kingdom to another. In this case, it's being transferred from one world to another, from a world of darkness to a world of love. And again, it's all through Christ. And then thirdly, he says, thank God for redemption. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ qualifies us for heaven. He transfers us from a terrible world to a wonderful world, and he redeems us by forgiving our sins. So maybe you can't thank God for any of these things because you're here today and you've never experienced them. And so your prayer is, Lord, qualify me by accepting Christ's qualifications. God, transfer me from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Redeem me by forgiving me of my worst sins, my habitual sins, my indwelling sin, all of my sin. And then you'll have something to thank God for. All of us, we, we can increase our thanks by, by thinking upon our qualification, our rescue, and our redemption. God, thank you that you are a Savior that qualifies me, who rescues me, who forgives me. Isn't it incredible? that God can be pleased with us. You know how hard it is to please people. Yet the true and living God shows us four ways here that we can give him pleasure, that we can rejoice his heart. People pleasing produces bitterness, but God pleasing produces thankfulness. God is waiting to smile. Imagine that. That you and me, as small as we are, as, as insignificant as we seem in the entire cosmos, yet when we produce fruit and we learn more about him and we depend on him and we thank him, God cheers. He celebrates. His heart is delighted. What a God. What a Savior. People-pleasing produces sin. It requires mind-reading. It's draining and it's frustrating. But God-pleasing is produced by increased fruit, increased knowledge, increased dependence, and increased thankfulness. 
Pray, as Paul did, for a filling of his spirit that you can be a God-pleaser, not a people-pleaser, through increased fruitfulness, increased theology, increased dependence, and increased thanks. Christ is supreme, and Christ is enough. Christ is more than enough, and you are complete in him. Would you pray with me? God, you are more than enough. And we thank you so much that you have displayed your glory through your Son and that because of Jesus, we can live lives that please you, that you can delight in us. And God, I, I want to pray for, for, for people here who, who may never have, have pleased you as a judge. God, I, I pray that today they would, they would confess the name of Jesus, that they would, they would believe in the name of Jesus, that they would forsake their, their, their sins, repent of their sins. God, so that you can justify them, so you can declare them righteous in your sight by, by the merits of Jesus, not because of what we've done, but because of what, what Christ has done for us. God, I pray for, for those of us who have walked with Jesus, who have, who have pleased you as a judge. God, I, I pray that, that we would look to bear good fruit in our lives, that we would live humble lives, that we would live generous lives, that, that we would live giving lives, that we would live sacrificial lives. God, that we would, we would look to please you, that we would constantly give you thanks, that we would constantly grow in our knowledge of you, that we would long to know you, that we would know you more and more, that we would live lives that honor you, God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word. We pray this all in his name. Amen.